Hello and welcome to the Shiny New Object podcast. This is a podcast about the future of marketing. And every week I have the pleasure and the privilege to interview someone impressive, exciting, influential from the industry. And this week is no different. I have Manisha Sewell, who is Group CMO for Caro. And we were introduced by the lovely team at the Future Conference that is running on the 16th and 17th of October in Singapore. If you'd like to find out more about Manisha and the other speakers, that's futr.today. So an incredible lineup, and I'm lucky enough to be interviewing a few of the speakers in the run-up to that event. Uh, And Manisha, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Tom, for having me. So... For the audience that is primarily UK and US, could you explain to the listeners what Caro is and what your role is for the business? Certainly. So Caro is a Singapore-based tech startup. We are a three and a half year young company and we are already Southeast Asia's largest car marketplace. Uh, So we started the operations uh, in 2015. Uh, Our business is primarily, it's a B2B, so business to business. We enable small car dealerships to uh, improve their revenue by connecting them with our platform where uh, live bidding and live auction of car happens. So whether you're an end customer, you could could put your car there. Uh, If you are a dealer, you could put your car there and our platform connects this very fragmented market in Asia uh, in not only improving uh, the movement of cars, matching the demand and supply, but in certain markets, we also provide financing where we enable these small dealerships to uh, boost their revenue uh, a lot more than they have done in the past. So that is, uh, that is pretty much what, what Caro does. And I was just sharing with you earlier, uh, even though we are a three and a half year old company, we are already established in four markets now in Southeast Asia. So as of yesterday, we've opened our uh, operations in Malaysia as well. Uh, so we now operate in Singapore, Indonesia, Thailand, as well as Malaysia. Uh, and we've had a very fantastic trajectory and uh, also very blessed with uh, impressive lineup of uh, investors. So we are backed by SoftBank, uh, Insignia, Sequoia, uh, you know, uh, EDBI, which is a government-backed uh, fund from Singapore. So uh, very fortunate to be in this space and Asia, given our population size, given how smartphone penetration is, is going up, uh, this is the right time for tech to really digitize this very traditional industry. And tell me a bit about your role as Group CMO. Um, you've listed off a bunch of different regions that are very different, and you must struggle with quite unique marketing challenges in each of those regions. Can you tell us a bit about how, how the Group CMO role, role works and how you tackle some of those issues? Sure. So at a group level, my number one role is really to build trust around the brand because a used car market uh, place is not a very trusted space. Um, and, and this is really where my role along with my teams becomes very critical. So building trust is probably one of the hardest things to do because you can't rush 
something like trust. You have to build it over time. So my role is really to find the best, the most efficient way to A, tell the story of the brand because we have a fantastic story. We are in the right place. We are trying to do right by our customers uh, and also our dealer network. It's to tell the story consistently across Southeast Asia. Secondly, is to build the brand awareness uh, based on the, the business model that we have because our stakeholders or our customer is not just uh, people like you and I, Tom, who drive cars and maybe want to change cars. Uh, our customers are also uh, small car dealerships. So how do we reach out to them? And, and given how huge Southeast Asia is, I mean, look at Indonesia, 400 islands. So imagine how fragmented that market is. How do we, uh, how do we consistently give our messaging out uh, and connect with them? And a lot of this, even though tech does enable it, it is still a relationship-based industry and we can't really run away from that. So my role is really uh, to find the best way to build trust, to build awareness. Uh, and as people discover the brand and all the different solutions that we have, uh, drive a consideration uh, and also a preference towards our brand compared to the other players out there in the market. And uh, also to delight the customer along the entire customer journey. The best, the best I would say, and the most interesting part of my role is also, even though we are a tech company, Half of the journey of the customer happens in the digital platforms, and the, which is Google, Facebook, uh, programmatic. And the other half of the journey where the actual transaction takes place is offline. It happens either in a used car dealership or it happens at, at a place the buyers and sellers want to meet. So how do you really translate that customer experience or the brand promise that's made online to really be delivered all the way till the end when the transaction actually takes place? So we'll come back to Caro a little later on, but we, as usual, have some getting to know you questions. So help us understand, Manisha, a little better. What is the most useful thing that you've bought for work with your own money, where you've actually <laughs> put your own pocket and bought something that you, you take to the office or you use in a work context? Okay, I, I love that question, actually. Nobody's ever asked me that before, you know, Tom. Um, and when I, when I saw the question, I said, wow, this is brilliant. So there are two things uh, that I bought with my own money. One is cars. The other one is a camera. Okay, so I'll tell you the camera one first. Uh, so I, I took up photography lessons a couple of years ago. Uh, I bought for myself a DSLR camera. And the reason why I say it has been, uh, I'm so glad that I did it, is because it creates an appreciation for uh, uh, abstract creative and artwork that we design because now in Cairo I don't have the luxury of working with a, a big advertising agency everything is done in-house so I have my own in-house videographer graphic designer copywriter we do everything in-house and to be able to acquire that skill uh, and uh, really give very concrete uh, and actionable feedback to the team uh, to me, that is, uh, that is really worth, uh, worth its, I would say, its value in gold. So one is, is camera and that photography lesson. Two is cars. So I actually changed 10 cars in Singapore in the past 14 years. And I guarantee you there are not a lot of people in Singapore who would be able to do that. You have to be literally crazy to do that, given the price tag of cars in Singapore. 
Uh, so sorry, just, Manisha, can I just jump in there? Can you help yeah, people sure. who don't live in Singapore understand quite yes, how expensive yes. it is to yeah, sure. own a car? Sure. So, so just, just uh, for context, a Toyota Vios in Singapore costs the same as a BMW M5 US, plus you would still have a US $10,000 spare change. Wow. So a, yeah. Uh, a BMW 6 Series in Singapore costs the same as two BMW i8. You know, the ones with the butterfly doors. Right. Okay. Yeah, you can get wow. two of those in the US. <laughs> so that is... The, <laughs> so a Toyota costs about 98 to 100,000 US dollars in Singapore, an entry-level Toyota Vios. Uh, yeah, and that is really because uh, our government wants to maintain the number of cars on the roads. That's why if anybody wants to come to Singapore, you would love our roads. They are, the traffic is very well managed because barely 10% of the population drives or owns the car. Uh, the rest of them, they either do ride hailing or uh, take the public transport. We have a fantastic uh, public transport in the country. So yes, yeah, so the best thing, uh, second best thing that I bought for myself was the change of cars, uh, 10 cars. And that, I say that because as an end customer, it allowed me to go through the customer journey from selling my car directly to a used car dealer and then maybe buying from there, selling my next car to an end customer and then doing all the paperwork myself to save some money, uh, maybe selling my car to a brand new car dealer and then trading in. And I've done this 10 times. So I have been in and out of the uh, you know, car, various cars, various budgets, various models I've tried. Um, and that has given me, uh, I would say the knowledge that money can't buy. I mean, if I didn't do that, I don't think uh, I would be as passionate about cars as I am currently in my role. So you sound like the, the kind of worst kind of boss, really. <laughs> like, not only do you have this really deep-level understanding of user experience from every aspect. In Absolutely, Tom. You also know how to take a photograph, and you can tell a creative what they should be doing. My God. Exactly. <laughs> so, Absolutely, yeah. So... Those things like sound like, despite me um, teasing, that sounds like a very sensible move. But what what's changed recently for you in terms of your belief structure? What new beliefs or behaviours have you brought on board in the past five years that have made a significant difference to your work life? Sure. So I would say the the one there there are three things there actually. So one critical one that I've come to realise in the past five years is the value of time. I think time is, is probably the most valuable currency we have right now. And the way we choose to spend our time will define pretty much how we see ourselves, how we want to see ourselves in the future. So I'm very cognizant of the way I spend my time, uh, be it spending time with family or friends. I'm very particular of that. So that, is, I've, so that also ties me back to another question you asked me later. Is I've also gotten better at saying no to people who I don't think uh, I should be spending time with. So that has improved my quality of life a lot because now I have more time for myself. Uh, and in the past five years, I have gotten into a very uh, nice routine of waking up early. So I wake up at 5 a.m. I, uh, I go and I exercise. Then I walk my dog. I have a huge golden retriever, bless her. Uh, and uh, you know, I would meditate every day. And then I have my breakfast and come to work. 
sounds like the dream. Yeah. Sounds amazing. But yeah, sounds like the dream. <laughs> very technical question based on that. But yeah. if you get up at five, what time yeah. do you finish work and what time do you go to bed? Well, the thing is, because I've learned to say no to people who, uh, who I should not be spending my time with, I do have time at hand that I'm able to finish my work pretty much by around 7, 730. Um, even if the work does need me to, to sort of log back in later, I will still leave office around 7, 730, uh, have my dinner, and I walk my dog. Uh, uh, after that, I'll just take a quick shower and I'll be back to work from home. But I am definitely in bed fast asleep by 11 p.m. Right, six hours sleep. That is, that's yes, not a at lot. At least six. That six is, is, six is, is, uh, is on a bad day. <laughs> six is on a bad day. Ten is on a good day. So 10 p.m. I'm right, brilliant. I don't, okay. really, I don't really watch TV on weekdays because it affects my sleep quality. Right, great advice. So, <laughs> so apart, apart, from, uh, apart from saying no to people, getting a dog, meditating, exercising, yeah. not watching TV during the week, what advice would you give to people who are just entering the industry now? So assume a bright, motivated student who's doing all the basics right. What would you say to them if they were considering a career in marketing? Sure. So I would say marketing is, uh, is, is one thing, Tom. But the other thing I would say is automotive industry. Automotive industry is heavily male-dominated. So my advice is going more towards the women marketers or the, or the female marketers, that if they like cars, if they have an interest in cars, they should not be afraid of joining a male-dominated industry. Now, don't let gender hold you back. And uh, I, I, can, I would love to tell you a little story, Tom, if you have time. Just a quick one. Yes, um, when I, when I, Yeah, when I first uh, uh, got the role at Caro and I went to, to meet my boss, uh, I actually asked, I actually uh, recommended somebody else to him for this role uh, because, uh, you know, somebody who was a bit more, uh, had a startup experience. Because if you look at me, my background, I have worked in multinationals all my life. So Levi, HSBC, Zurich, the works. I don't have startup experience. And uh, he still decided to go ahead and, and make the offer to me. So I asked him. Why, why did you decide to, to hire me? Because I thought I don't have the startup experience. And uh, he said something that initially I was a bit offended with. He said, well, Manisha, I needed somebody who was a bit more rugged. And he, he said it to me when I was wearing a floral dress with high heels. <laughs> okay. And I said, and then my heart thought, which part of me looks rugged to you? <laughs> then I said, ah, boys are boys. You know, boys are not good with words. Ah, whatever. And, I, and we just had a chat. And I said, okay, well, I'm really excited about the opportunity because I believe, uh, I do believe in the brand and what we're trying to offer uh, to the customer. And then I joined uh, Caro uh, and being a regional role, I had to travel to Thailand, to Jakarta. I also had to travel up country to say Chiang Mai which is a tier two city in Thailand. And really, Tom, that's when, when I started visiting the used car dealer space. Now, those are family-run businesses. People are not very educated, heavily male-dominated industry. Uh, you know, people look at you and they, they probably spit here and they spit there. Uh, when, they, when they're talking, maybe a couple of, you know, bad words come out of their mouth as if it's nothing. 
And that's when I realized the value of the word rugged. Because if, uh, if had, had he hired somebody who cannot take uh, the ruggedness of the real world, you know, with a smile on her face, then it would not be easy for a woman to really perform in this role. Uh, and, and I think at that moment I realized I am so glad that he decided to get me because I grew up in India and uh, India does may give you a couple of hard knocks growing up. You do end up being very rugged all the way, you know, from inside out. Uh, most women are trained to be very rugged, very, uh, uh, you got to take care of yourself, watch out for things. So I think that is my advice to, to young women who want to get into automotive industry. We don't have enough women in this industry. And if you think that you like cars, or you like tech, don't let the gender hold you back. Join the industry, be rugged. You can wear a pretty dress, but in your heart, as long as you're rugged, your mind is rugged and you can take it. Just join it for the experience. There's so much potential, there's so much to learn. Uh, it is really, really priceless. So that would be my advice. Don't let gender hold you back. Brilliant. That's great advice. And, and thank you for saying that. So let's have a look towards the end of your career. And you've asked me to ask you my favorite question, which is how do you want people to remember your career? Do you want to be remembered as someone who was rugged, but also wore nice clothes? Or would you, do you want to be seen as a, an inspirational leader or help me understand how you would like to look back? Sure. Uh, I think at a personal level, I hope I would like, I would like to look back at somebody who was, uh, who was an outlier, uh, fearless, somebody who did things differently and uh, challenged the norm. Uh, that is how I would like to be remembered at a personal level. But from my team's perspective, I hope to be remembered as a people developer somebody who openly shares knowledge and, and guides the team. One of the things that I do also, Tom, is I lecture. I lecture at universities, at, at polytechnics, uh, even at, just last week, I was uh, lecturing students, MBA students from uh, St. Gallen University, Switzerland, about innovation and, and disruption. So I love sharing knowledge, I love sharing my experience, and I love guiding the team to perform better and better. I mean, my team in Singapore, the average age of the team is 24. And they are so young, they're so hungry to learn. I just hope that I, I'm able to mold them and also my other teams in different markets to really uh, question more, speak up more, and uh, be, uh, grow both professionally and personally when they are, uh, uh, they are part of my team. So for the rest of the podcast, what I'd like to focus on is your shiny new object which yes. is the subscription economy in Asia. So it's interesting that you've put in Asia on the end of that. Um, I think the people who listen to this podcast should be familiar with the subscription economy and be part of it. If it's certainly if yes. not uh, working for one or, or certainly receiving the benefits of one, could you give us an overview of what the subscription economy is like in Asia like, and how it might differ to the West? Sure. So subscription economy in Asia is just picking up. Um, and uh, I, I was just looking at a very recent report that talked about which are the top countries globally uh, where people expect 
to subscribe more in the next two years. So the top country in the world is actually China, 53%, followed by Spain and Italy. And number four was Singapore, say 38%. And after that, all the other countries that sort of follow, so this is the top 10, all the other countries that followed are all US and Europe. So we feel that while Netflix and Spotify is uh, sort of gaining ground in Asia, it is changing behavior a little bit, but the change is really coming from the demographics that, that embraces subscription. So let's look at millennials, right? Millennials are people who are born uh, from, the, from the year 1981 uh, all the way to 1995. And the millennials, Asia, especially China and India, hosts 47% of the world's millennial population. Now, when I say 47%, that is not a small number, Tom. We're talking about 855 million millennials. And they're based on statistics. Come next year, globally, the millennial uh, economy is expected to be worth $1 billion, sorry, $1 trillion. So that's a big number. And imagine half of those people, or half of that $1 trillion actually sits in Asia. So I'm sharing these numbers because as a tech company, we do look at trends. We do look at uh, how, uh, how is the economy evolving? What are the new trends? Uh, uh, what are the dying trends as well? So car ownership, if you look at India, if you look at Thailand, actually car ownership is steadily on a decline. But we see uh, subscription just in general, which is Spotify, Netflix, seems to be on an increase. If you look at uh, Netflix alone, their investment in Asia has gone up tremendously uh, this year. And the growth that Netflix is enjoying is primarily coming from the paid users from Asia. So now what this tells us is, uh, is that people are getting used to subscribing to things. Yes, I can't compare. Uh, Netflix payment is probably about $17 a month. It's not very expensive, but the idea of not owning something and subscribing to it and then canceling it anytime and pausing it anytime seems to be something that the millennials love to do. And then we went deeper into this trend and we found that millennials in general, they do not like to own things. They don't like commitment because they are, at least in Asia, they are, they are in debt. Reason being, there's a lot of middle class that is growing in Asia. So people who are probably in smaller cities, they're moving into slightly bigger cities. Education is also enabling that. But while they are earning more than their parents did, the lifestyle is, is uh, the way that they're living their life, they're, they're spending a lot of money. And also they tend to take on student loans uh, for their school and they pay it off the moment they start working. So they are uniquely burdened in a way. So they're middle income, but they're not spending like a middle class and they are a bit in debt. And that is also fueling this entire behavior of, why do I need to own things? I can just use it for a time and then I can pass it on to the next person. Uh, and then millennials in general, they find this whole process being very efficient and green. Uh, the only thing that the millennials do want to own, though, is their smartphone. So if you are in the, in the industry of smartphones, nothing to worry about. Uh, millennials will continue buying smartphones. So we look at all these trends, right? So one is the, the size of the population. Then is the way that the trends are changing, the way their mindset is self-shaping. Uh, we overlay that and we said, why don't we 
create something new with cars, car ownership. Uh, and then we challenged ourselves and we actually launched in uh, end of March this year, Singapore's first Netflix for cars, which is a subscription-based model where you can, uh, there's no down payment. You just subscribe to a car, you pay on a monthly basis. You can change a car every month as and when you like. You can cancel it anytime. Uh, you can upsize, you can downsize. And that has been hugely successful, uh, Tom. That's been hugely successful. So that is, our, I would say, our shiny new object is subscription economy, millennials, and how when we launch a subscription service for cars, how it is shaping the way uh, people own cars, which is they don't want to own it, if the new future of car ownership is actually subscription. So how close to Netflix for cars is it? I, I know that's an analogy, but can you give us an idea of the, the user experience? Is it a case of you just, you're swiping through different cars and then you click on one and it, it gets delivered to you? How, tell me how the process works. Sure. So you just go online at car.sg. Uh, and then uh, you join in. So we launched it first as a wait list. Only three days ago, we removed the wait list. So you join in as a wait list. And the moment you join, uh, there's a car selector page that will come up. It will show you all the different cars that we have and the prices per month. The reason we call it Netflix for cars is because you are charged on a monthly basis. And you're always pre-charged for the current month, okay? and you can change the car as and when you like. Of course, there's a, there's a bit of a notice period. So you go online, uh, you join, you give us your information, name, email address, phone number, the plan that you're interested, or if, if, you, if you don't know the plan, it's okay, just continue. Select the car that you would like, you click on it, and you say you wanna see this card. There's people still need to come down because nobody, as of now, all of our customers still want to see the actual car before they sign on, uh, on the documents. So that you come down, you see the car, uh, you want to test drive it, go ahead, and then you can just swipe your credit card and off you go. Everything is taken care of in a one flat monthly fees. So there's, uh, that covers road tax, insurance, roadside maintenance, all the variable components that come with, with car ownership. The only thing that our customers need to pay for is usage, which means fuel, um, parking and uh, we have something called ERP, electronic road pricing. Uh, that's about it. Nothing um, else. And what are the what are the usage trends that you're seeing that you could share with us? Sure. So when we launched it uh, end of Mar end of March, um, we already have as of now we have four thousand people on a wait list. We have uh, pushed out two hundred cars already on the road. Uh, and we are really studying the model very closely because this is so new. We are also learning along the way. Uh, but the usage, the utility rate has been 100%. So whichever cars that go out, even though we ask the customers that you're welcome to upgrade and downgrade, they don't want to do that, at least not yet. Nobody has the car yet. Uh, I think they, they tend to get a bit comfortable. But the flexibility is, is there for them. So yeah, so 200 cars are already on the road. Now, uh, Tom, the more this ecosystem grows organically, the more we plan to bring our dealer partners, our dealer network as part of this program. So all, imagine all the traditional car rental companies who are 
currently making people sign long-term contracts, making them uh, you know, pay a down payment. All that is gonna end over time as this ecosystem evolves and the customer demands more flexibility in terms of uh, their, their car usage experience. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. It really feels like you're at the start of a revolution and being the CMO across all of the markets that you mentioned and trying to get that message right. And as you say, uh, you know, you can't rush trust. I thought it was a really nice way of putting it. But uh, I guess in, in, in some ways you're going to have to do it as quickly as possible. And I think that's a great challenge. What a fascinating business. And I'm feel so, so grateful that you've given up your time, given that you launched yesterday uh, to yeah, in Malaysia. this podcast. So uh, if someone wanted to get in touch with you, how would you like them to do that? Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Very, uh, I check it very regularly. So just look for me, Manisha Sewell, M-A-N-I-S-H-A-S-E-E-W-A-L. Go on LinkedIn. You can find me there. Disconnect. Fantastic. And if you are in Singapore on the 16th to the 17th of October, go to future.today, that's F-U-T-R.today, and you can see Manisha in person. Thank you so much. I'll look forward to seeing you next month. Take care. Thanks, Tom.